But it's not about how many times I said something. It's about how many opportunities I provided to my students to use the vocabulary or to use that word speaking and writing. So that's where that shift happens of what is going on on daily basis in the classroom really determines how much of that content that we strive to cover gets internalized by the students. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast from Elevation Education that explores how we can help make an impact on our nation's highest growing student demographic, multilingual learners. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. Before I introduce this episode's guest, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the interview you're about to hear is just one part of our exploration of this topic which has to do with academic language. You'll find multimedia resources, including a transcript of this episode, accompanying blog posts, videos, collaboration opportunities, and much more on our learning community. Visit bit.ly slash getmlresources, that's all lowercase, for more information. Our community resources are always free and available when you need them. Just use the search bar or filters to find the resources you are looking for. On this episode of Highest Aspirations, what is the difference between active and passive vocabulary, and how does the transfer from one to the other happen? What are some simple but effective ways educators can build in opportunities for multilingual learners to internalize and be able to use academic vocabulary in speaking or in writing? How can we build students' confidence in speaking as they develop new language skills in and out of the classroom? We discuss those questions and much more with this week's guest, Natalia Heckman. Trained in Russia as a technical writer and a translator, Natalia never thought about becoming a teacher, but after her first year in a classroom, she knew that teaching was her calling and her mission. Natalia has taught English and ESOL classes, assisted teachers as a secondary ELA and social studies instructional coach, and served as an ESL bilingual program specialist. She currently pursues her passion for linguistics and education as an educational consultant with Sidelitz Education. The trainings she's authored include Moving ELs Forward in EOC Writing and Building Better Sentences. Natalia holds a bachelor's degree in literature from the University of Houston at Clear Lake and a master's degree in school administration from Lamar University. I really appreciated Natalia using some personal real-life examples to try to get this message home. I think you'll find the episode both inspirational and actionable. Enjoy our conversation with Natalia Heckman. And once again, thanks for listening. Natalia Heckman, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. It's my pleasure to be here. I love your podcast. I'm so excited about the topic that we're discussing today. Thanks so much. And you're just another uh, member of the the Sidelitz family joining us to come on. We've had so many of you and it's great to have this partnership and to kind of bounce ideas off each other. I won't say who it was, but just before this call, I was actually speaking with another person for another topic from Sidelitz. So you're doing great work over there. (laughs) Thank you. So I I want to start by level setting on a couple of terms that we're going to talk a lot about during this, this conversation that are in the title here. How would you define passive or receptive vocabulary um, versus active or productive vocabulary? Could you give us like a quick working definition and perhaps an example of each to kind of set the table for the rest of the conversation? Okay, so I'll explain where the terms come from, and I'll give you one personal example. It's a really simple concept, actually. As humans in any, it works for all people, not just language learners. We know more words that we can use. So every person has a passive or receptive lexicon, that internal word bank, an active or productive vocabulary, the words that we use. So the receptive vocabulary consists of words we recognize, we understand when we read a text or when we hear those, uh, when we hear the words in speech, And the productive lexicon, these are actually the words that we can use spontaneously, more or less, in our own speaking and writing. Um, This directly corresponds to language usage domains. And we always think about four. So listening and reading and speaking and writing. So these are, um, in the way that we use vocabulary according to those language domains, our receptive vocabularies are much larger than our active vocabularies, and it's normal. It's to be expected. 
Um, and I mentioned earlier, we understand more words that we, are, that we actually know how to use. So my personal example, and actually I had to think about that. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to use the word incendiary. So if you look it up, incendiary is something that is designed to cause fires. And I um, knew what the word meant when I heard it on TV. I knew uh, what it meant when I maybe saw it in print sometime, but I never used it until this moment right now. So that's my first time actually saying out loud in our conversation um, here. This word, if I did not use it uh, today, it would continue living in my receptive lexicon only, and it may never transfer to my active vocabulary. So unless I make an effort or unless I have a situation that allows for that transfer, it may never happen. Yeah, you I that I, explains. Oh, it definitely does. And I think like most people know what those terms mean, but I think you, I, I wanted to ask that question, even though it may have seemed a little elementary, because uh, well, basically, because of the answer that you gave us, you just gave us a really good working definition of it. And I think the the use of the word incendiary, which may or may not be a word that I've actually ever used on my own either, it might have been a part of my passive vocabulary, gives us a great example. And I think you've also illustrated the point that we're going to get into today is you actually have to sort of make an attempt to use a word to bring it into your um, your active vocabulary, which is not easy. And as you were talking, I was thinking about I, I, I don't know, as the older I get or what it is that I feel like I'm, I'm grasping, right, for these words that I've read about that I thought was such a great word to use, but I can't come up with it. Um, this is as a, as, as a native English speaker. So that kind of gets us to the next question I have for you, which is like that transfer, right? The transfer from passive to active vocabulary, as you just very nicely illustrated, does not happen on its own. You used incendiary. Hopefully you'll continue to use it a few more times, and then you'll wow people with that vocabulary word in lots of different places. For a teacher, um, how, it's a different situation almost, right? The motivation is different. How, do, how does a teacher go about making that transfer happen as quickly and as effectively as possible, but without overwhelming students, getting to the point of productive struggle, but not too much struggle where they don't want to do it? Okay, so from the perspective of an English learner, uh, what is often overwhelming is actually sitting and listening for vast stretches of time to that Great continuous point. and continuous and over like in an uninterrupted flow of speech and especially in the foreign language. So, and I um, always ask whenever where I'm in training or maybe there's a, uh, there's a person who never learned a foreign language. I say, okay, turn on a foreign film with no subtitles and see how long it's going to, how quickly you'll get exhausted just from listening. Um, that's why our English learners are multilinguals are so uh, tired by the end of the day, their brains are melting. It does take a lot of effort to listen. And that's what overwhelming. So number one, um, teachers can do to is to allow time in our lesson plans for those conversations. And you probably know that we tend to over plan. When we run out of time, students talk is the first thing that gets cut. So we sacrifice those priceless moments when the actual learning takes place. So when that language gets internalized for the sake of covering the curriculum, because there's so many things we have to get done. Mm -hmm. So it might be um, actually for us advantageous to turn our attention to the amount of time we purposefully allocate to student talk. And it has to start with planning. Another great point. I, I, <laughs> I was thinking... One of the one of the probably most interesting professional development opportunities I've had was a really simple one, and it was just shadowing a student for a day. That was it. I shadowed a student for a day, and I kind of reflected on the experience, got myself into what a, a student was doing. And I was teaching high school, and I was utterly exhausted, just as I was when I was a student, because in most situations, the teachers were speaking the entire time. So uh, I really appreciate you bringing that up as as really one of the biggest pain points and what really exhausts. Um, students, particularly multilingual learners. Um, and yeah, the other piece that people can certainly reflect on and think about a lot is what gets cut when you're trying to get through everything and how do you get those moments um, in? So uh, much appreciated there. It, I've read a few of your blog posts, kind of how we started this conversation, although, as I mentioned, I'm, I, I love the work that everybody's doing at Silence. But in one of those blog posts, you referenced um, Marsano's six-step process for building academic vocabulary. And you specifically uh, talked about 
um, the fact that students need to negotiate the meaning of words through application. They essentially need to test them out and see if they can make sense of it, um, of them to others. If that's the case, how can teachers go about creating those kind of safe spaces where students at varying levels can kind of test that waters freely? Because that's an issue, right? Like the, what's the classroom environment like? So how do you set up an environment where not only are you not talking all the time, but you're creating a safe space for, for students to be able to take risks? It's a two-part question there. I'll, I'll, I'm going to take one piece at a time. So I'm, I'm famous so for those two-part questions. Sorry. <laughs> okay, but I'm going to keep in, keep in mind for the second part. We'll get to Marzano's steps. But you're absolutely right. The only way to learn a language is through communication. Um, so, and that communication will not happen without the culture of respect and collaboration in the classroom. So when we invest time into teaching kids how to work in pairs, work in groups, um, how to praise one another, how to take turns, we're actually investing time into the right thing. And it does take time, procedural side of it, procedural side of setting up the language environment takes time. So, but it's worth it because that's how we create that risk-free place where languages flourish, where language learning takes place because students need to be comfortable participating in those conversations with peers. And we know how awkward sometimes it is to even for adults to get a conversation started. Um, now in Texas, and I'm, I can't speak for the rest of the country, but I'm pretty sure that uh, Kagan, Spencer Kagan is a well-known name. And I don't think we have a single campus here in Texas uh, that has not received training on Kagan's collaborative routines. Um, if I mentioned that just a couple, you probably know exactly what those are. So numbered heads together, stand up, pair up, tip, tip, trade. And many of those, we just do those intuitively after teaching for a while, you know how to get kids um, moving and form those partnerships. But those are all Kagan's structures and that's a great place to start investing into that uh, process of collaboration in every classroom. And if you want Marzano to work, I would say do Kagan first. So in going to Marzano, I was actually being silly in that blog. I said that there's a reason there are six steps in Marzano's vocabulary uh, process. And you mentioned in the beginning that it takes more than once. Just hearing the word mm -hmm. once does not transfer it from our uh, passive receptive uh, lexicon to, um, to the place where we can use it um, comfortably. So if I, um, when I look at Marzano's process, it's really very helpful for me to have that framework. and. All the steps start with the letter D, that's how I remember them. So describe, describe, draw, do, discuss, and play. Play is the only one that's the oddball there at the end. So if I look at the Marzano's vocabulary, uh, six steps, it starts from the place where it's the teacher tells what the word means in basic, simple words. Then let's ask the student, tell me what, what do you think that word means? So the student describes, or the student tells the, um, in a way, shows a definition, understanding of the definition. Then the kids have a chance to draw anything. Sketch noting is so popular. So mm -hmm. uh, it's such a great way to process that listening that we may be doing just through sketching something. And it's not about my autistic talents as a teacher. I don't have to be an artist. It's, it's up to the students what they draw to create that memory cue. Um, and then we go to that do part. So do something with the word. It doesn't even have to be conversational yet. It could be sorting. It could be uh, breaking the word apart. So looking at some word parts or morphology. It could be matching. It could be matching synonyms or uh, finding antonyms. Now, when we get to discuss, look how many steps we already got through. And discussion part, that's where the students actually use the word in a conversation. But it may be not... Um, unprompted, it may be not spontaneous conversation yet, it could be rehearsed. And then eventually last part six uh, is at play. So charades, word associations, notice that it's gradual. So it starts from very carefully, let's look at the meaning of the word and it moves it to the active uh, vocabulary, it moves it to the place where I'm comfortable enough to use it um, without somebody prompting me to do that. So that's the Marzano. That's why I love Marzano's six steps there. Yeah. And I think, you know, we have, or certainly I'll speak for myself as a, as a former foreign language teacher. I mean, I had the tendency 
when I started to want to go from kind of zero to everywhere, like not follow those steps. And I think, you know, I did that because I just didn't really have a great understanding of how, of what we're talking about right now, how you incorporate those words from your passive vocabulary into your active vocabulary, but also because um, I, I saw how quickly, <clears throat> excuse me, many students, and this is particularly true for, for multilingual learners that we work with, they can generally pick up their social language pretty quickly, right? Um, the informal language, because it's built on relationships and it's trust and it's just a different situation. But the academic language or the academic vocabulary typically falls behind, it lags behind, um, which of course can then mean that some students never get to the academic le uh, level that they want, or you have issue with long-term English learners or the, 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 the problems go on and on. So what, what I'm going to ask you right now is kind of what I think I lacked as a new teacher, even not a teacher of multilingual learners, but a teacher of, um, of, of students who, taught, uh, who, who are learning Spanish for the first time. What are some simple ways that teachers can help students practice their academic language, especially when, when they're so much more, particularly high school students who I worked with, but I think all students, they're so much more motivated by the rewards of social language. So how do you pick those apart and really get them motivated to use that academic language? Um, I, I think that what you just said is just so true. Why do we acquire social language quickly um, and rather effortlessly because of massive exposure. It's everywhere. It's in, on social media. It's in the It's in the cafeteria. It's in the playground. We talk at home or we speak to somebody, friends, peers, family, maybe. Now, um, unless it's a foreign language and you're learning in the country where you don't have that part. But for the most part, as our um, multilinguals learn English, they do have the massive exposure to the social uh, language. At the same time, they have the expectation of that negotiated output. They have to participate. They have to have that uh, interaction with the language where they, they are expected to respond orally in this case. Um, in the academic register, it's almost the opposite. Much less exposure and very little expected production. So if I go into a classroom and I know that there is a, let's say it's a lecture. My expect, there's very little expectation of production of that, whatever the vocabulary I hear, I will have to use it orally or in writing. Typically we focus on comprehension, which is a great place to start, but it's just some, very often it ends at comprehension, never gets to that output part. And understanding something does not mean that you will be able to talk about it in using the vocabulary that is expected of you. Um, now, what are some things I can do? And I can just go through a, one domain at a time. So let's say I'm a teacher and it's we're in that lecture mode. I am delivering instruction. I want to stay in the academic register and I want to pronounce words clearly. I want to um, focus on a couple of, not 10. So the list of 10 would be something, oh, there's so many words my kids need to know. What are those between two and four uh, key terms that I'm going to draw students' attention to create multiple exposure opportunities throughout the lesson. It's repetition. So I will just have to repeat those over and over and over again. If I'm lecturing and if I have slides on my um, screen, I want to point to the words that I pronounce. If I read a sentence from my um, slide, let's say, I want to track the print with my finger or with my laser pointer. So whatever is coming out of my mouth matches the print form of the word. So we very we enhance that connection between the sound and the print. Um, and we know that many of our students need help with decoding. So right there, we just help a little bit along or push us or help our students with literacy. Now, if I have opportunities, if I give opportunities for students to quarterly read something with me, that is so helpful. It takes a second but it's not, it's a low risk um, strategy. How many sentences that are, those are the most important ones that we're not gonna core, uh, read quarterly everything from mm -hmm. every single mm -hmm. slide, what, of course not. But what is one, two sentences that I expect students to say once they get to that structured conversation portion? Those are the ones I'll read quarterly because it can make a difference in students uh, participating or not based on 
Are you comfortable saying that word? Do you know how to pronounce it? Especially in the secondary, that's intimidating, mispronouncing something. Um, when I give my students the opportunity to partner read or read with a partner, the same paragraph maybe or the same passage when it comes to content that I just um, delivered as a quick uh, interactive lecture, it's different, it's helpful because now all that context that surrounds my um, oral speaking, so it surrounds my speaking, let's say when, I, when my students are listening, they're also watching my body language, they have access to the visuals that I might be showing, I'm pointing to things, I'm maybe acting it out, I create that comprehensible input. Now, it's the same content, but the students have to read it on their own. That the nonverbal clues are removed. Can they use that vocabulary in reading or can they figure out what the words mean when they negotiate the meaning just from the text, so mm -hmm. just from reading? So this is just a quick follow-up there after me as a teacher uh, delivering students listening, then what can we do next? And of course, the speaking portion of it, I would set the expectations for structured conversations in every classroom. So when I go into the uh, lesson, even if it's a lecture style, I know that that production is expected of me. Um, and it just makes a difference in how I listen and how much, how, how actively I will be listening to um, certain key moments that I would be expected to even repeat. That pay or like repetition, tell, turn to your partner and tell your partner exactly what the teacher just said. And even that is helpful. Um, but for our conversations to be structured and not just turn and talk, um, and it's not free for all. We set that language target. So let's say this is the sentence that I want my students to use. And these are the vocabulary words that um, I would like for my students to use. Maybe those are the ones that's in my pocket chart. Um, QSSA, you mm -hmm. might have heard about this. And that's such a great, hands-on, the best sharing conversations, structured conversation strategy, yep. because it really it takes care of the um, procedural side. And it's helpful. So if you Google it, it's, it's everywhere. And it's QSSA. It's a sidelet strategy, my favorite. Um, and the reward, you mentioned the reward of that social language that we feel included when we feel a part of the social group, when we can communicate effortlessly. So the interaction, the peer interaction with peers and feeling successful, it's the same really basic um, feeling you get from participating in the conversation with your peers. It's just the register of the language changes, but the reward, I think it's basically the same. Yeah, you know, I, this this might be a really simple way of kind of um, distilling everything that you just said, but I think it's worth mentioning. You know, we started out by talking about the academic language and how, or, I'm sorry, not the academic language, we started talking about the social language and how it's everywhere, it's all around. And so you almost can't avoid it. But when you're working with that academic language and you really want want students to, to be using it, <clears throat> you really have to kind of over-prescribe it, right? Think of multiple, multiple different pathways to do it. And I think if you can think of it that way, if you're maybe a content teacher, and maybe you haven't worked frequently with multilingual learners. This is something that can help. I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation how, you know, I feel like my, my, uh, the, the language that I, that my passive vocabulary is getting, is, is increasing and my active language vocabulary is, is decreasing because I'm not necessarily giving myself opportunities to use them. But as a teacher, if you're building in all of those different tools and strategies, you're kind of compensating for, um, the so the the things in social language which are all around, and I just think that looking at at it that way might be a little bit easier to understand. Because as a teacher myself, some of the things that I, that I would do, you know, some students get embarrassed by it, um, and if you notice that they're embarrassed by it, then it's hard for you, especially as again I keep referencing being a high school teacher. It can become difficult for a teacher to do those things because that's the last thing they want to do. But again, establishing a, an environment where that's okay, and then understanding it through that framework where you're kind of over prescribing, I think is really helpful. Uh, definitely. I think almost like that prescription, like over prescribing, when we say that term, we feel um, that some, some sort of negative connotation attached to it, but we do need that. 
as we need to see um, in what the sentence looks like. What is what do you want me to say? How do when we say you need to you stay in the academic register? What exactly does that mean? It's really a combination of the vocabulary and the sentence types. So in order for our students to produce academic uh, language, they need to see what it looks like. So the expectation has to be there. And that's pres that's the prescriptive nature of certain uh, parts of the conversation. And we're not going to do it for every single interaction in the classroom, because that would be that would be extremely boring and, and it's just not very welcoming. But for the key moments of the content and language is a part of it, everything really about that um, content, internalizing the content, we cannot do it without having the proper language for it. Um, so when I um, when we have this conversation with educators, very often I say, well, why do we need sentence stems? I can say it in many different ways. And I say, okay, well, you are a native English speaker. I'm an English learner. For me, in order for me to internalize this sentence or maybe that phrase, I don't need to hear it a billion different ways. I need to hear it one way a billion different times. Yeah, I like that. So I'm going to say, okay, in order for me, if, if I want my students to truly internalize that language, they need to hear it more than once. And it will only happen if I set the standard and provide the structure for those conversations that will happen in my classroom. All right, so let me, let me zoom out a little bit um, because we all know that there are, there are teachers who are working under great leadership with great curricula, who are doing great things. Those are great combination. There's other teachers who maybe are experiencing a lot of shifting leadership, which is very common now, or curriculum is constantly changing. And so they're in their classrooms making great decisions every day about using academic vocabulary, for example. So that kind of brings me to my question here, which is like, how much of what we're sort of talking about here, how much is it related to curriculum development and design as opposed to the individual sort of choices good teachers are making every day. Um, and I guess what I'm getting at is if, if the objective is for students to perform well in standardized tests or to get through a specific curriculum, how do you get teachers or how do you how do teachers go out and justify building in more time, as you said, for discussion um, and practicing academic language? I know that's kind of a, it's a tricky question. Maybe it's a little unfair, but that's a, that's a big one. It's important for a lot of people. Is and it does. Uh, it is. It's constantly on our mind. It's constantly that these are the conversations that happen in the teacher lounges, right? Um, so I see the curriculum as a pathway, and it has to be in place because it sets the goal of that vertical alignment. So as a teacher, I need to know uh, what are some certain things that my students absolutely has to, have to know before they move to the next grade. So that's for the most part the purpose of the curriculum, but it's the map. And it's the teacher who steers that ship. If let's build that analogy, there's ship of learning. You have the guide, you have the pathway, you know where you're going, but you nobody can make decisions for you. It's the teacher who decides on what happens in the classroom. That's why we cannot micromanage teachers. Uh, we can share information. We can um, we can share the best practices and just make make everybody uh, just stop for a second and pause and think, hey, no matter how many things, it's really not about how many things there are in the curriculum. It's about how many things uh, are internalized, are being internalized by my students. And for me, uh, embracing the need of student talk, it really caused such a pivotal shift in my thinking that I reconsidered many things that were going on in my classroom. Yep. So it, it became uh, more, uh, it's not about how much I cover, but it's it became more, how much did you internalize? How much my kids internalized? Because if there were direct correlation between what we cover and how the kids test, everybody would be testing perfectly because that's typically not the problem. We mm -hmm. cover most of our curriculum or all of our curriculum. It's the, about that uh, retention retaining information, retaining vocabulary. So very often we hear um, or we say, well, I said something 100 times, right? Or I went over this 100 times, but it's not about how many times I said something. It's about how many opportunities I provided to my students 
to use the vocabulary or to use that word in speaking and writing. So that's where that shift happens of what is going on on daily basis in the classroom really determines how much of that content that we strive to cover gets internalized by the students. Yeah. Uh, one thing that you said at the very beginning of that answer that I think a lot of people are going to pick up on is we cannot micromanage teachers. I think that's that's really important. And you like the, the point here is, you know, yes, you need a solid curriculum to know where you're going and where you need to get. Uh, but if you're sort of micromanaging and making sure that you do every little thing, there is not going to be that retention that you talked about. Um, and so there's that kind of classic structure versus agency, give the structure, but allow teachers to be professionals and do what they need to do. Um, I love that. Um, one thing that we hear pretty frequently uh, here, I hear it all the time, both from my colleagues at Elevation and guests that come on the podcast, is that good instruction for multilingual learners is good instruction for all students. Um, and there are lots of different ways to kind of look at that and kind of prove that 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 point. And I've said it a, a bunch of times that yes, that's something that I could work on as a native English speaker. Um, so two kind of ways to ask this question. The first is, is how can focusing on transferring academic language from passive to active vocabulary um, banks help all students? And then like the maybe the better or more kind of relevant question is, how do we differentiate for students at varying levels? Um, if we have classrooms where we have students who are multilingual learners, students who are um, uh, native English speakers, and we try to figure out where they are, how do we go about doing that? Um, that is a that is a good question, and I think sometimes differentiation or the concept of of differentiation does get misinterpreted uh, quite often. So, all students are academic language learners, and that's this, this is just so true for every single person, even English speakers. When they go into the classroom, the language is different from what they are uh, exposed to, and we know that. Now, so when we say practicing academic language. It's not just, okay, let me, let me pull all my multilinguals aside and uh, let's sit in a circle and repeat after me. So that's not something that we want to happen. Um, there has to be authentic interaction with the content, using the language of the content, and with other speakers, so other students in the classroom. That's why we are not uh, by any means um, pulling the kids aside and uh, offering different sets of activities because we want everyone to be and really receiving that rich content-based instruction. So the question is uh, more about including English learners into the conversations that have to happen in every classroom, regardless of whether or not you have multilingual learners there or not. So even if the class uh, does not have any English learners, the, the structured conversations still have to happen. If I'm aware of the fact, or if I know I have English learners in my classroom, I become more aware that they need different scaffolding. So we're not uh, creating a different lesson or we're not building three different lessons, one for each uh, level of language, but we are offering uh, different types of scaffolds for students who may be at different language proficiency levels. Um, my beginner students may need more simplified sentence stems. They might need uh, word banks, while my advanced ties, my uh, students who are near proficient, they might need different types of supports. So really having that array of supports and students are very intuitive. Eventually, and I've seen it in action, if there are several sentence stems, the kids will choose the one that is uh, appropriate for them. So mm -hmm. it's more of an offering as an option, as a choice, what's going to help you learn um, something. And then the kids reach out for that scaffold if we offer it to them, especially in the secondary setting. Um, we're very often, I, I feel like we might be underestimating how much um, kids well, understand this is good for me. I can use this. I need a vocabulary. I need the dictionary for this. So I need a sentence stem. I need a minute to talk to my first language or same language partner. I can't participate. And Carol Salva tells us all the time uh, that language learning is not a deficiency. Uh, we just didn't have an opportunity maybe to learn a language, but we are not deficient in cognition. We can learn anything that you are offering us mm -hmm. scaffolds to teach us. So. Yeah, I love that idea of providing options and letting the students to the extent that they're able, and in many times they are perfectly able to choose the ones that work for them. That that empowers them, and it doesn't 
you know, it doesn't make them feel um, undervalued or that they need something that others don't have, which was kind of like where I was going to go with my next question. Well, I think we've, we've addressed it, you know, again, <clears throat> as I've referenced this a bunch of times today as a high school teacher, um, it could be awkward, you know, to, to sort of make that transition from social language to academic language um, in front of their peers. It was, it was, it was difficult, but you just mentioned one particular strategy. Well, it's not really a strategy. It's really just kind of a common practice, giving them options of sentence stems that they could use, letting them use the ones that they want that are best work for them. It's kind of letting go of the reins a little bit. Can you think of anything else that might work in a situation like that to kind of combat that, that awkwardness that puts that, that barrier up for students? Um, yes, you, you're leaning, you're leaning towards confidence. We want students to feel confident in our yeah, classrooms, yeah. confident participating. Um, but something that I really, I'm really passionate about this and I see it happening in so many classrooms and I always, um, praise teachers for putting so many scaffolds in place and, um, so confidence, it's not spontaneous or accidental. It doesn't just happen magically, right? It comes from all those linguistic and procedural supports that you as a teacher put in place. So if I see students uh, participating in the conversation, just speaking in class, in one class they uh, speak, in the other class we may say, well, they don't really say much. The question is why? And I think, um, we can learn, you're, you're a foreign language teacher, uh, you can definitely relate to that. And we can learn so much from foreign language teachers in that aspect. So as a foreign language teacher, when you go into the lesson, you think in the back of your mind, you think, okay, my students do not know the language. They, and I have to, it prompts me and it forces me to assess those language tools that the kids will need. You're going to say, what are the words that I need to teach them? What are the sentence types that I need? What are the sentence stems need to be on my board? Uh, what will I read quarterly? What will I model? What, so all of these things, I think that in a foreign language classroom, all this is uh, for taken, we take it for granted because that's what we're doing as yeah, foreign language Second teachers. nature, yeah, yeah. Second nature. So in any content area, if we just uh, focus on that language a little bit more and amplify it, the same process may need to happen. Um, and uh, the, the uh, term is like front-loading those language tools mm -hmm. and thinking ahead of time, if I want my students to speak, what supports will they need? Now I'll have to plan for those. Yeah. Yeah, we see that, uh, talk about that a lot in, in particular content class, particularly math and STEM classes where you really, really need to have that, that vocabulary front-loaded in order to get the content down, not only just have conversations, but to understand the content. Um, and we, we've talked a lot about um, speaking and listening. What about writing? I mean, are there, how do you leverage, as we do a lot of writing, how do we leverage writing activities to support transferring passive vocabulary into active vocabulary? Is that something that works similarly? Is it different? Is it something that we can plan for? Um, I love the, uh, the quote by Dr. Conti, and I'm reading his book. I just finished reading two of his books, but he says that, you don't really know the word until you know how it behaves grammatically. And you have to just stop and pause there for a second, right? It makes you think. Um, in writing, in my opinion, and it's just, uh, it gives us time. It forces us to notice things in a language that otherwise we may not even notice. Um, so in his book, and it's not in the blog post, but I'm just going to share it and see if it uh, makes uh, as much sense to others as it made to me as a language learner. So here's an interesting thing. When we listen to something, when we listen to a sentence, let's say, we do not process all words equally when we listen. We just skip over a lot of them. Uh, we, we focus on the words that carry meaning and we, there's some other functional words we may not even notice because we're focused on comprehension. In order for me to understand the gist of the message, I don't need to understand every single word in a mm -hmm. sentence. So if you say, like, for example, you say, um, yesterday, on account of rain, we stayed at home. I heard yesterday, rain, stay home. That's enough to figure out what was said, right? Right, right. I did not hear on account of. That's that academic register mm -hmm. propositions. I did not hear stayed. 
I did not hear ED at the end because it's enough for me because you said yesterday, my brain says, who cares about ED at the end? Yesterday's enough for me to figure out that it was past tense. So the way we process things while listening is enough to get the gist, that comprehension to happen. But in order for us to uh, to really use the language in speaking, and here we're talking about writing, writing gives us time to say, oh my goodness, there are so many other things that I need to really slow down and notice in the language. So that's what happens in writing. It's uh, when we... Uh, when we give opportunity for students to write or record their thoughts uh, or record the uh, content that they just acquired from you as a teacher or from the text that they read or from the, from the uh, lecture that they listen to, there is an extra layer of difficulty, but that's good. That's that um, productive struggle a little bit. Right. It forces us to focus on the language. Um, so what are some things we can do? Uh, simple dictations. And now not a very, not nobody, no, uh, not many people do it in the secondary. It's helpful. Let's write down the same paragraph that we just read. Helps us to make connection between, hey, this is what I hear. This is what I write. Um, fill in the blanks, close exercises. Uh, help, it's very helpful because when I well, plug in certain words in a sentence, just, and it requires very little prep time. So it's the same paragraph that, was in that I used for reading or the same paragraph that we read is, uh, with, with my partner. Now, let me um, mark out some words and have the students plug those back into mm -hmm. the paragraph. Yeah, just repurposing. Yep. Repurposing, recycling the same things. We don't need to create anything new. And it's just, we also have that, we hit the mark for the multiple exposure, but yeah. it's a different type of interaction with the content. Um, and of course, writing with paragraph frames, the same sentence stems that we just completed orally in my conversation with a partner, I can use as an exit ticket. And I say, okay, guys, there's sentence stems on the board. You can steal somebody else's answer that you heard during the discussion, or you can write your own, just one sentence, Complete it in writing, drop it on the way out in the basket or just submit it to me electronically. And I don't have to grade everything. So we always think that if it's writing, it has to be graded. Absolutely not. It's just another opportunity to have that interaction with the language and do it in the from the productive side of it. So where I'm the one uh, producing sentences. Yeah, you become more like an engineer almost when you're writing sentences. You're really thinking about it and you're being more well, more, more deliberate about how you're setting it up. Um, and I love what you said as well about the repurposing, of course, that it's not something new and you got to create something brand new. And that, yes, like, hallelujah, not everything has to be graded, right? It can be something that, that, that you're doing uh, to give students another opportunity um, to learn, which I think is, is key. You know, we have that, we have that uh, inclination often that if it's coming back to me, I must grade it and I must spend a tremendous amount of time on it. Not always the case. And that's, that's freeing for a lot of people. So as we wrap up here, I want, I want to, I want to get your take on um, uh, something you wrote about in the blog post that I really loved. You gave an example um, about your professor of American literature um, and how it came back to you 15 years later as a teacher. I'm not going to give it away because I'll let you talk about it, but I think it enca encapsulates kind of the internal struggle that many teachers have about language, including myself. So again, I'm not going to preface that anyway. Can you tell us that story as we kind of wrap this up? Because I think it's a really nice way to, to end it. Yes, of course. It's, um, it's quite embarrassing, actually. But I did share it because I feel that we need to know that as teachers, we have the right to change our minds about things throughout our careers. And uh, I was in my last year uh, of uh, finishing up my undergraduate degree, and I was in a class that I really wanted to be in because I heard good things about the professor. And I noticed about probably like a week or two in, into the semester that 30 to 40% of class time was spent in group discussions. And I was uh, really not a big fan. I thought, oh my gosh, what's going on? So I eventually <laughs> went up to the professor and I asked him, do I have to stay for those? I really don't want to spend my time talking to the people who know as much as I do. I'm here to listen to you. So please lecture away and let me take notes. And that was the, um, I don't, back then, and again, I was, didn't have anything to do with education at that point. 
I was just there in that class to study literature. That was for the first time when I heard that term internalizing knowledge. And he was kind enough not to be upset with my with me being so um, I don't know, disrespectful almost. I, I really would never do anything like that ever again in my life. But you were curious. You that. weren't you weren't disrespectful. You were curious. <laughs> yeah, but it <laughs> maybe was a little just, innocent. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I know. It's not something I remember fondly. That's not my, it's not my brightest moment. But he did explain to me that in order for me to really um, uh, internalize the content or talk about the books, and what we did, we just discussed in groups the notes that we took in class, uh, the books that we read. And he said, like, you really have to participate in those discussions because that's a way for you to internalize knowledge, to internalize knowledge, to internalize that content that I share. And I back then, I really disagreed with him. I did not. I was not on board. Now, I just I'm completely opposite. I'm a proponent of student talk. And we know that teacher talk dominates most of our secondary classrooms. And that's the way I liked it 15 years ago. But I had a huge change of heart and a huge change of mind. And that's why I shared this story, uh, because it does take time to figure things out and to learn and to, and it's okay. So we don't, we may, it's one profession, one profession, I think, where you can go into the next year and do things slightly differently in your classroom. And you can see that, um, how it works with your students, because it's definitely, we see the results pretty much very quickly of what we do. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that story, and and you you had already shared it, so I didn't feel like you would be too worried about embarrassing yourself on it. And um, I, I just think it's great, and I I think, you know, you you said that that's what you wanted as a student, and that's still what many students want, and and quite frankly, it's what our many of our own students would prefer to have. So we need to be able to explain to them, like your professor did to you, what it is that we're trying to do, um, obviously in a way that is that is age and grade appropriate. Um, but, but it's not uncommon. And I mean, even I still do some work at the Harvard graduate school of education, and we have graduate students in education who I will look at the feedback from the courses that I, that I'm on teams on. And, and they will say, I wish that the professor would speak more because this is the expert and I want to learn what they're doing. But a big part of it is internalizing and discussing, and that's, it's not about language. It's about understanding the concepts and running ideas uh, past one another. So it's not uncommon. Um, I think there are many of us who probably would admit that in certain situations, they would rather not be working in a group. They would rather kind of sit there and passively absorb. But at the end of the day, you're going to take a lot more from it um, if you're taking that time to process. That's a great story. I appreciate you sharing it. Um, I think a lot of us, it it just rang so true for me, and I'm sure many others as well. Um, Okay, so two more questions. The first is one that I ask everyone, and anyone who listens to the podcast knows what I'm going to ask, and that's if there's a book or a film or any other resource that's had an important influence you on you, either personally or professionally, um, that you'd like to recommend to anyone who's listening? Um, okay, so the personal reading, something I read for fun. Um, I, or you might, everybody think if we teach the AP English, you might have heard about uh, The Kite Runner. I just read two more books by Khaled Hosseini. He's, uh, I, I, right now, I think he's my favorite writer, my favorite author. I read um, And the Mountain Echoed, and I read A Thousand Splendid Sons. In most of his books, most of the plots are set in the 80s on the 90s uh, in Afghanistan. And I think that book was really, uh, it was good for me to read those. It's not going to make you an expert on Afghanistan by any means, but it gives you a different lens to see the culture, to see the current events. So that was, I love the books. And it's such such a beautiful language. Um, and interestingly, he is a doctor. He's not even a writer. Well, now he is, but his uh, first education for his first profession was medicine. Um, and professionally, I would recommend the book uh, by Dr. Gianfranco Conti and Sam Smith. I mentioned his name today um, earlier. I think I quoted him. But the book is called Breaking the Sound Barrier. And it was written for foreign language teachers. But to me, as an ESL teacher, as a teacher, language teacher in general, I think it's a great way to, um, it's just a, this is the book where I learned the most from, I think, during the last year. And it's all about highly patterned, comprehensible input. It's about listening. 
interestingly, we speak about we talk about uh, speaking and student talk today, but the book that I recommend is about listening. Um, can I also recommend a podcast? Yes, please go ahead. I love that. Uh, so I just listened. I was on a plane to El Paso, and it took me uh, here and there and back to finish that podcast. But Tan Wen uh, just did the podcast with John Seidlitz, and uh, his uh, podcast is called Teaching Multilinguals. It's on my um, phone, so I just just turn on and listen to it when I fly. But it was very helpful. If you are if you're familiar with the Seven Steps framework, it's a lesson framework for building language-rich academic classrooms, so uh, interactive classrooms. And even if you're familiar with Seven Steps, but listening to that podcast just gives you so much more insight into where Seven Steps came from and how the book came along. It was just, it was beautifully done. I enjoyed it so much and I recommend it to everyone. So, and it's Tan Wen and he was talking to uh, John Seidlitz, the founding father of our company. Yeah. Two, two of my favorite people, by the way, Tan was one of the first people to come on this podcast. And then, and then John's been on a few times and them together. Actually, they were both at our impact conference about a month ago and they both, they did different sessions, but they were highlights. Um, so amazing. Yeah. We'll link to that for sure. Tan's great. And, and as I mentioned, John is too. Um, and I love the, the, the reference of the book, um, your professional book, because uh, anything that we can do to kind of bring the world of foreign language teaching and multilingual learning, uh, multilingual teaching education together, I think is good. I talked with another one of your colleagues, Anna Mattis, about that maybe two years ago about how you know bringing the the lote with the or the lote with the um, with the multilingual education together, which I think is is lacking. So that's great, and we'll link to all of those resources. Um, and finally. Um, Natalia, how can people learn more about the work that you're doing if they want to find out? Uh, well, the, the website for our company is sidelitseducation.com. And of course, we'll link to that. Um, I have a personal blog and it's nataliaeslblogs.org. Uh, I'll spell it out. Natalia is N-A-T-A-L-I-A-E-S-L.edublogs.org. Uh, so um, that is a professional blog. I write about secondary, it says secondary English learners or secondary everything for secondary English learners. But however, some of the blogs is just, I seem like it's a really good topic and I'm excited to write about it. So I would add it to it. Um, I have a link tree. That's something new I learned how to do. And it's linktr.ee slash Natalia Heckman. So that takes you to all my social media that I have. Perfect. And we'll link to all of those on our show notes, as well as the accompanying blog post here. You'll be able to find a transcript of this episode as well there. So um, everything that you need and more. And with that, um, Natalia Heckman, it has been a pleasure to chat with you. This has been a long time coming. I'm glad we finally had a chance to do it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.